Hey everyone, welcome to the question show your questions, my answers, uh, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just write it down, I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. And of course, I do this show live every Monday at 5pm Pacific time on my YouTube channel. So if you want the best chance of getting your questions answered, including follow up questions, uh, you'll want to join me uh, live. But Still, I'm uh, trying to be active in the chat in the comments and uh, gather up questions from all the sources. All right, let's get into uh, this week's questions. Dwayne Duval asked, does dark matter clump together like normal matter or does it have a maximum density? No, dark matter seems to clump completely differently than regular matter. And this is this is one of the things that's really interesting. This is why astronomers call it cold dark matter, as opposed to hot dark matter. And that's because from the way they do the observations, dark matter really doesn't seem to clump in the way that regular matter does. And I'm sure you're like wondering, like, we don't even know what dark matter is. We've never even observed it. How do we know whether or not it clumps? And the answer, of course, is this incredible observation of this place called the bullet cluster, like more than a decade ago, astronomers observed this giant galaxy cluster that's really far away called the bullet cluster. And the cluster was in the process of merging. And as the and and what had actually happened is the merger had happened a long time ago. And so the two groups of galaxies had smashed into each other. And so what you were able to see was you know that the galaxies are made of stars, and the stars are really far apart. And so you would assume that the stars would kind of mess each other's orbits, but they wouldn't actually bash into each other. So the stars kind of passed through each other as the galaxies moved through. But the gas it clumped up because the gas is sort of everywhere and the particles are fairly warm and they have a large cross section of gas like think about you know a balloon when you inflate a balloon a balloon is just gas bumping into each other inside a, an enclosed space that keeps it inflated and so the gas in these galaxies actually clumped up together in the middle even though the galaxies sort of passed through and you're left with this region where the gas had collided and through gravitational lensing astronomers were able to look at the areas around the galaxies themselves and see that in fact the dark matter had moved with the galaxies themselves so it hadn't collided even though the dark matter should have crashed into itself the dark matter just passed right through itself and moved back out with the galaxies so what this tells astronomers is that dark matter is some kind of particle with a very small cross section it means that it doesn't have the ability to bonk into each other, you could inflate a balloon with dark matter and it wouldn't inflate it wouldn't stay inflated in the same way because the the particles aren't colliding with each other. Now, that sounds kind of magic, like, like, you know, isn't the same thing as a particle that doesn't collide into anything the same as I don't know, nothing. But we have a great example of a particle that doesn't collide with anything very rarely. And that's the neutrino. So of course, there are nuclear reactions going on in the sun, nonstop, uh, 4 million tons of hydrogen is being converted into helium every second. And that process is releasing gamma radiation, byproduct is helium. But when physicists did the math for that, they realized there was like a little bit extra that should be there as well. And so they predicted that there was this additional particle called the neutrino, but the particle was really hard to find. They said if this thing exists, you must have countless 
billions, trillions of these particles passing through your body at all times. And yet they interact so little that you don't even feel them. And, and it took bigger and bigger, essentially vats of water for particles to pass through until they finally were able to find an example of a neutrino colliding with a particle, releasing a cascade of other particles. And that told astronomers that in fact, this thing, the neutrino exists. So when you think about dark matter as a particle, as an example, and it, like, you know, I always give this example that that a neutrino could pass through a light year of lead of solid lead and not interact with any of the atoms of the lead. That is how small a cross section the neutrino has. And so when you think about that, that idea, um, dark matter won't clump up in the same way that regular matter will. And there's all kinds of interesting implications of this, like, you know, I think we've talked about this before that if you have like a black hole, and you have dark matter swirling around a black hole, with regular matter, the matter is kind of bouncing into each other, and slowing down its orbital momentum, and it goes into this death spiral around the black hole. But, but dark matter, because it doesn't have that cross section isn't going to be going into the black hole, it's not going to be bouncing into each other and slowing itself down. And so although particles of dark matter could go into a black hole, they're not going to go in and clump up in the same way, you're not going to get accretion disks in the same way that you do with regular matter. So, um, so it does clump, but not like regular matter. Um, it has a very, very small cross section. Jonathan Allen, when will Starship stop blowing up in Texas? Man, I, I don't know, like, Starships blowing up is what they do. Uh, it would feel like a total if we we're in a, in a world, I go, I wouldn't even know what kind of world we we're living in if starships didn't blow up. Every starship so far really that's been assembled has exploded unintentionally. They were from pressure from testing engines from actual flight tests, and of course, landings. Yeah, they just blow up. It's what they do. Um, and of course, I mean, this is it. This is what rapid iteration looks like. And of course, if you go back and look at old timey footage of NASA and uh, and the Soviets testing rockets, they all blew up. I mean, it's just like, there's so many uh, hilarious blooper reels of rockets exploding. And of course, we know of much darker times when rockets have exploded with with humans on board. So rockets are super incredibly dangerous. And I, I, like, it's hard to appreciate how much danger and how unpredictable and how really at the very limits of of movement rocket is because you're literally taking a payload and you're accelerating it from zero to 25,000 kilometers an hour in about 10 minutes. It's a, it's a phenomenal amount of energy. And the only way to do that is to have a really, really powerful fuel and to release that fuel very quickly in a very explosive way to generate your flight. Now, of course, the funny thing or the not funny thing anyway, with the starships is they've just been they've been landing and then exploding. So they every other part of it that the flight, the maneuvers up in 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 the air, and even kind of getting close to the landing part, it's all worked really well, it's just really sticking that landing. And then then again, though, you think about it is this building size tower of stainless steel, that you're attempting to touch down gently filled with liquid methane, it's incredibly difficult. And I think we're going to see this more and more. I mean, when you saw that that latest landing of SN 10, 
like it landed, but it was a hard landing, you could see it kind of bounce. And that was enough to rupture whatever was going on inside of it to then make it detonate. And so they're going to have to continue to perfect the technology of make this thing softer and softer and landing and or some other way that the landing legs work because I think the you know with the Falcon nines, the landing legs are carrying a lot of the load as the thing is coming down. I don't think they've come up with the same idea with the with the starship and eventually with the I know with the super heavy the plan might be to have it land on a crane. So um, I think this is going to take them a little while I I wouldn't be surprised if we see a couple more of these things explode before they really get it right. And it might be that they're going to have to over engineer the landing that, you know, one of the advantages of Starship with the the Raptor engines is that it can uh, hover, while say the, the the Falcon 9s, they have to do this thing called the hover slam. So they, as they come down, they, they can either go up or be turned off. And so they have to fire the rocket at the last second to cancel out the downward velocity so that it essentially equals zero at the moment they hit the ground. But the Starship with the Raptor engines could get closer to the ground, hover, get a little closer to the ground, hover, and then slowly touch down. And maybe they're going to have to spend their time working more on on really perfecting and figuring out what are the forces that it takes to be able to land this thing and then teach that to the artificial intelligence that's running the landing so that it can it can keep its tolerances even closer because you know we've seen now three hard landings um i suspect we're going to see more of them until this gets sorted out so um i would not at this point i would not be surprised if the next one explodes as well but i would be pleasantly surprised if it didn't i want to get you know for me with starship the i mean the big question the thing that i really want to get to is when do we see orbital reentry that is that's the key is the orbital reentry can a starship make it back through the atmosphere and land every other part of it seems totally feasible to me it's that orbital reentry that i am that I'm super nervous about and I'm really excited. If we see that work, then everything changes. Uh, if we don't see it work, if we see them, you know, obliterate starship after starship, then they're gonna have to go back and make more fundamental changes in the way this this whole system works. Horizon Brave. Have you heard of the Stellina telescope that you can buy? They sell it for 4K, but it's supposed to be like an all-in-one imaging device. Have you seen it? Not only have I seen a Stellina, I've actually played with one. They sent me a demo unit about a year and a half ago, and, and I was able to spend about three weeks with it. Uh, it's amazing. You take this thing, it kind of looks like the portal gun. You set it up, you have an app on your phone, you, you turn on the, the telescope with your phone, it figures out where it is on planet Earth, it orients itself, it takes a picture of the sky to figure out what its orientation is compared to the sky. So now it's literally polar aligned itself. And then you just give it targets, you say, give me a picture of this galaxy, give me a picture of that nebula, and it does it. And it uses, um, you know, fairly modern astrophotography methods of, of directing at some target and, and building up an image over time, you know, the longer it sort of takes a picture and it takes another picture and takes another picture and then averages out the three pictures and throws out the bad data and just gets better and better and better. And it is it is as simple as it as it as it looks in the pictures and in the video, literally, you 
set it up and you're starting to take pictures, and even in light polluted skies. I mean, you know, when you look through one of the biggest telescopes that you can get your hands on at the Andromeda galaxy or the Orion Nebula, they all just look like fuzzy bits. It's only when you actually switch to astrophotography that things really look good. And so this is a great way to do entry into astrophotography. Now, that all said, um, it's $4,000. $4,000, you can buy a really nice telescope mount, a really nice telescope, a really good camera, and do astrophotography that will blow the Stellina away. But it's a total pain. <laughs> like, I've never experienced a telescope that's so easy to use as the Stellina. It is wonderful. And so I think, is it, you know, if, if you've got like a ton of money and you just want to start taking pictures of the night sky, I would get one, right? If you're rich. Um, if you're not rich and you want to get into astrophotography, I would start with a much cheaper setup and learn kind of the hard way and like treat it like a serious hobby and, and get to know it. Um, because it is a, it's the future that that this they have cracked it and and there's others as well. Um, Unistellar, and, there's, and I'm sure there's going to be a million of them coming out shortly. Just this idea that that polar aligning aligning your telescope for a night of observing is is an is misery that absolutely takes away from the experience of of doing astronomy. It is the worst part of doing astronomy. It makes me not want to get my telescope out when I see interesting things in the night sky, because I'm like, Oh, I've got to align it. Let's just use the binoculars instead. Let's just use the the, the Dobsonian instead. Um, so yeah, no, I think I think they that it will be a revolution. And you're going to need to see that technology brought into other telescopes. Because the thing that I want to see is that amazing tracking ability matched with a really good telescope that if you get those two together, I mean, it's not that it's not a good telescope, right? It's a really nice, I think it's like a it's like an 80 millimeter refractor with a pretty good camera, but you're not gonna be able to upgrade the telescope, you're not gonna be able to upgrade the camera. So you're sort of stuck with what you get while with a regular telescope, you're, you're like, I want to get a better lens, and I want to get a better camera as the new upgrades just keep coming. So, so I would say if you're super rich, definitely buy one like it'll just you just boom, you're doing astronomy, you're king of the world. Um, if you aren't rich, then I would hold off and wait until that technology gets more commoditized. And I even know they've got a cheaper version coming out as well. So uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, does it work? 100% what it what it they say it does, it absolutely does. It. Pacer, do you agree with Abby Loeb that there is a conservative bias in mainstream astronomy about life elsewhere in the universe? Maybe? Hmm. All right, so so let me just sort of explain what I think Abby Loeb's position is. And again, I'm still trying to sort of coordinate a, an interview again with him. So stay tuned for that. Um, but he feels that that extraterrestrial life is like one of the most important questions that you can ask. And weirdly, uh, the mainstream scientific community is not that interested in funding it, not that interested in, in investigating it. And and I would say that I would agree. And I, you know, I had this conversation with with Dr. Jason Wright uh, a couple of years ago, and he was like, like, we're okay looking for dumb life. Why is it? Why aren't we allowed to look for smart life? Right? Like, why not? And I think that because extraterrestrial, like if we found evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence, it would be the most profound discovery in the history of humanity. 
we are not alone in the universe. There are other minds out there as intelligent or more intelligent than us with civilizations like that. That means a lot to to who we are. And potentially we could communicate and share knowledge. Um, potentially, they could be a threat in the future. So it's important to, to have an answer to this question. But I also understand why the mainstream science community isn't interested in looking into this. And the answer is just because it's really hard to gather any firm evidence. You can set up a radio telescope and you can scan the night sky for evidence of aliens. And that's being done. Uh, it's definitely underfunded. It could be done way better than it's being done right now. But apart from that, we don't have a lot of ways that we can search for extraterrestrial civilizations. Uh, there's a couple of stories that we're working on right now. Uh, one, just this idea of techno signatures, like what's what's every what's every way that you could search for intelligent civilizations out there, not just their signals, but let's look for their pollution. And let's look for their light pollution on their on on their planets. And so there's a lot of really clever ideas that are starting to come out. And it would be great to see some of those applied. But I think that you have to balance that with being able to get funding for your projects. And there's a lot of biases against people doing those kinds of searches. And I think that for a lot of astronomers, a lot of researchers, they don't want to put their neck out, they don't want to say, Okay, you know, what, what are you doing? I'm searching for aliens. And you're like, Okay, you know, funding canceled. And so I th think that that that's sort of where it all comes to but I, but I also feel like that's changing. I mean, you have people like Jill Tarter, who, you know, they made the movie contact, she's an inspiration for all of us. Um, and there's a, a Seth Shostak, and then then a lot of others who are, you know, and then it's a new generation kipping, uh, Jason Wright, and Abby Loeb, who are like, they're making searching for intelligent civilizations cool again, they're making it okay to ask to talk about these ideas to ask these questions, and to think of practical ways that we could get an answer to this question. And so I think I think the time is right. I, you know, I've been advocating for this for, you know, for years, not that you know, I have any poll, but still, I think in the end, I do agree that there's a bias against spending money looking for an answer because people don't feel like the answer is easy to get. And they don't want to spend money on something that is going to be really hard to get an answer for. I think that's where it stems from. You know, I, I don't believe that, you know, everyone's like, Oh, we're just not ready for the answer. No, we're totally ready. I'm ready. 100% ready. Tell me, tell me, let me know whether or not there's alien life out there. I want to know. So I don't think that's the reason. Do I think that there's like, a, a bias? No, I mean, I think you ask any astronomer, pretty much every, every astronomer and say, is there life in the universe? Most of them will say yes, most of them will say I believe that there is like, it seems impossible to me that there isn't. And so it's just how do you practically look for it? How do you spend money on what instruments on what telescopes to gain some kind of evidence that helps you get an answer on whether or not we're alone in the universe. That's the tricky part. And that's the part that I think only recently have the telescopes and the the missions gotten to the point where they can actually give us definitive answers on these questions. Zach Perry, what do you think the universe would be like in various eras after the Stelliferous era, just a lot of black holes. So that era, so what you're talking about is the far, far future in the in the you know, when you think about the universe today, we have the, you know, all of the stars that are in the galaxies, but we're actually 
past the part it passed to peak star formation that was about 4 billion years ago. Now, actually, the universe is starting to wind down in terms of star formation. And it's going to still keep going, but you're gonna have less and less stars forming every year in all the galaxies, until all the galaxies are these aging elliptical galaxies filled with red stars. And then one by one, those stars will wink out uh, as they turn into white dwarfs, neutron stars, black holes, the neutron stars, black holes merge with each other, you're going to have rogue planets that are just drifting in the cosmos completely devoid of any kind of heat. Um, they're going to cool down to the background temperature of the universe. And so in the far, far future, what you're going to end up with is black holes, and everything that didn't go into a black hole. <laughs> and that's it. So you know, if you have a, a, a rogue planet that didn't end up in the clutches of a black hole and was able to escape out into it's just going to drift forever. Um, everything else is either going to go into a black hole or or just be all alone. Now, way beyond that, you know, you've got to ask yourself, like, do protons decay, if protons actually decay, and we don't really know yet, then then you can imagine all of the actual material that didn't go into black holes is just going to um, evaporate into various particles, and the black holes themselves will evaporate again. And so in the end, beyond the black holes beyond matter, you're just going to have individual particles spread. And of course, the universe is going to be continued to expanding and dark energy is going to be ex accelerating the expansion of the universe. And so you'll end up with just vast emptiness with particles, energy that are have wavelengths that are light years across more, and there will be no more useful work that can be done in the universe. So that's what the that's what the future looks like. But when the last red dwarf goes out, say 10 trillion years from now, that's going to be the last time the universe will be productive, that there will be significant energy that you can use. Now people have proposed like really exotic ideas that you could huddle up around a black hole and you could drop matter into a black hole and extract the energy. And of course, because you're close to a black hole, you're going to be experiencing time dilation, where actually the background radiation of the universe will blue shift. So it'll be hotter, warmer. Um, these are all great ideas. And so there's I'm sure a very intelligent, very advanced civilizations will be able to figure out clever hacks to be able to um, live longer into the future of the universe until but even still the heat death is the heat death can't avoid it in the end. Trey Harmon asks, Hey, Fraser, can you tell us what things factor into the determination of the von Karman line is the edge of space purely atmospheric? Or is there more to it? The von Karman line is is really just a subjective number. There's no real specific place where Earth ends and space begins. At the lower altitudes, of course, the atmosphere is very thick, you get up to the stratosphere and above. And eventually, when you're up around 100 kilometers, there's literally, you know, like almost no atmosphere, but there is an atmosphere. And in fact, the atmosphere of the Earth extends at least 10,000 kilometers above 
the surface of the of the Earth. And it's thought that it goes all the way out to the moon. And of course, the size of the Earth's atmosphere depends entirely on the on the strength of the solar wind, the solar wind buffets the Earth's atmosphere pushing it around. So where the edge of the atmosphere is depends on the on the distance to the moon and the power of the solar wind. And so it's really very subjective about where it really stands. And so people will will come up with different definitions of, of what it is. No Cal Pacific, you said you're currently watching Babylon 5. Would you recommend Babylon 5 over DS9? Why choose? Watch them both. If you had to take one away from me, I would choose to watch Babylon 5. I think Babylon 5 is better than DS9. That's that's my opinion. And again, we're we've now finished the first season, we're into the second season, the part where it gets good. Um, and, and it still the first season holds up so much. I know I talked about this last time, but it's so good. The makeup is amazing. The computer graphics for the time, you know, they did it on an Amiga. It's incredible. And they've upscaled the graphics. So, so in many cases now with the season two, they look really good. And the storylines, I mean, they really figured out this idea of telling a long overarching story with a beginning, a middle and an end with characters that change over time with crises that grow and get resolved. Uh, it's wonderful. I'm really enjoying going back through it. And it was funny because last last night we were watching it. And, and normally, you know, with this first season, Carla's like, yeah, you know, I know it's gonna get better. But like, I'll just take like just one. And last night, I think she was like, No, we'll do another one. We'll do another one. Okay, we watched we watched like three episodes last night. So we're, we're, we're back in it. We're watching. It's good. Watch them both. But if you haven't watched DS9, watch it. And if you haven't watched Babylon 5, watch it. Raphael Dominichini and Battlestar Galactica. What do you think? Oh, I have such a love-hate relationship with Battlestar Galactica. The first parts of Battlestar Galactica were amazing. The end is so awful that it undid all of my fondness for the show. I won't watch it again. Carla just rewatched them. And she's like, yeah, these are really good. And I'm like, oh... I don't remember them being this good, but they're so good. I'm like, I know, I know. And that what that's what makes the ending so tragic. So bad. So heartbreaking. More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank Zach Sitcher, Suki Knightsward, Robert Munger, Peter Mandemaker, Victoria Wall, Benjamin Rosenberg, and the rest of our 855 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Zap fan, zap fan. Japanese guy is funding Starship to take a trip around the moon with a bunch of inviting artists. Would you want to go? No, no way. Not a chance. I do not want to fly on a Starship around the moon or Falcon 9, whatever. No way. Uh-uh. I like Earth. Um, I've mentioned this in the past. Like I'll fly to space after Elon Musk's mother does and return safely. I mentioned at the beginning of the show just how incredibly dangerous and just risky a flight into space is. I mean, you think like practically, like what would it be? You'd be on the rocket, it would be terrifying. You'd be in space, it'd be cool. Then it would be boring while you flew to the moon, or you'd be floating around. You go over the moon, that would be amazing. You'd be looking out the window, and then you'd come back, and then you'd have the terrifying return to earth. So, you know, if I could fly to space, and it would be safe, I would do it. If I could go to the moon and bounce around and go on a holiday, 
sign me up um, as long as it's safe. But but right now, spaceflight is is an incredibly risky endeavor that I think every time a human being goes to space, gets in a rocket ship, you've got to have a really serious conversation about whether or not this is the right thing to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't think we're ready for wide scale space tourism yet. We saw the price with the with the space shuttle two space shuttles destroyed 14 people like what's going to happen when 100 people die because a starship explodes on the launch pad. Um, and I, you know, I understand there's plenty of people out there willing to take the risk. But um, not me, <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy life too much. Um, and I just think that we need more time for this technology to become trivialized, you know, would I have been a barnstormer in the 1920s? No way I would have not gotten on an airplane. Will I get on an airplane today? Absolutely. It, no question. It doesn't doesn't cause me one moment's fear to get on an airplane today. So space flight, hopefully will follow a similar curve where you we start out and it's terrifying. And then we get to a point where it's safe. And we're not there yet. And so I don't think it's time to have a conversation about space tourism yet, in my opinion. But it's a free world. And so there's free there's, there's rocket companies willing to build rockets will carry people to space and people willing to pay money to go to space. And like, you know, now kiss, but I will not be a part of it. I will watch from afar and report on what happens. Jens Odvar, what would happen if a black hole and a white hole crash? I know white holes are probably not real. A white hole, the white hole would disappear because anything goes into a white hole, it causes the white hole to collapse. So mathematically, even though white holes probably don't exist, they exist as a mathematical sort of, if you reverse some numbers on the black hole mathematics, you get a white hole. Doesn't mean they're real, just means that you can reverse numbers on them. And but the math also predicts that if there's anything, even a single photon, then the white hole will collapse, especially if there's a black hole. Void sector. What's the current status of James Webb Space Telescope? Oh, okay. First, let me say James Webb is absolutely going to launch October 31st, 2021. Look at the date today, March 8th. We are seven months, eight months away from launch. It's going to happen. No more delays. Um, now that's just me hopeful, wishful thinking. But to be honest, I haven't heard of any other problems in the development of James Webb. They just like a couple of days ago did another full test, they sort of went through the entire process, unfurled it, did a full integration test. And so at this point, it's ready to go. Uh, the rockets ready to fly. I haven't heard of any other issues that are going to hold up the flight of James Webb at this point. Of course, last minute problems can happen, but I can't think of anything that's currently an issue for it. That, that said, I mean, it's just it's such a complicated telescope, so much can go wrong. Once it actually gets out into space, if any one of the hundreds of actuators fails to deploy, then it will be able to put out its sun shield properly, it won't be able to deploy its mean mirror. I mean, it's just every little piece of this has got to go right. So here's hoping. Phil Deshane. 
What are the practical implications of Venus not having a moon? How would we think of it differently if it did have a moon? Yeah, so I mean, we don't know if Venus had a moon in the past and it lost it. I mean, in the way that say Mars is going to be eating one of Phobos in the next say 50 million years or so. And it might be that Venus used to have a moon, Venus had some kind of large impact created a moon like the Earth, but the moon was too close. And so it spiraled inward and crashed back into Venus. You know, definitely, Venus's funny rotation could be explained by it having a large moon in the past, or at least that it was hit by a large object in the past. Because of course, Venus rotates backwards, and it rotates very slowly. And like you could walk on Venus, and you could outpace the sun, you could never see the sunrise if you just walked on Venus, you could outrun it. And so the fact that it rotates backwards from all the other planets in the solar system, that's weird. Um, uh, you know, it, what that means is that it was flipped over entirely. And so for it to be flipped over entirely means it had some kind of catastrophic collision, or by not having a large moon to keep it balanced, it just flipped over. And so uh, it might very well be that the fact that Venus is rotating backwards is the explanation that it never had a moon, and that by never having a moon, it couldn't keep itself stable, and it just wobbled upside down on its axis. So we've reported many times on like, if Venus didn't have a moon, it would explain its weird rotation. And then and then we also have like, if, if, you know, one big impact could have flipped Venus over billions of years ago. And so astronomers, you know, this is an open question in planetary science, and astronomers are absolutely running their models trying to figure this out over and over and over again. And we just keep we keep covering it with each incremental discovery on this. Um, I hope someday we'll find some kind of conclusive evidence. So if it did have a moon, that'd be interesting. I mean, a moon would be great. Having a moon around a planet is a really nice base of operations. And it's a way to learn like, like, for example, you know, if we had a moon orbiting Venus, then we could explore the moon and that would tell us a tremendous amount about Venus, while Venus itself is so awful to try and explore. So it might actually be a lot more practical to study Venus. You know, we're starting to think that Phobos and Deimos are actually pieces of Mars that were kicked out during a giant asteroid impact. And so by landing on Phobos and Deimos, which is relatively easy compared to actually going to Mars, you can learn a tremendous amount about Mars, what the early material under the surface might have been like. So that would be amazing if, if Venus had a moon. It's really now getting sad that Venus doesn't have a moon. So that'd be cool. Avi Scott and Flower. <laughs> Fraser, do you have a solution for Starship's legs? Seems like a big obstacle for an even bigger 18 meter Starship 2.0. Well, let's solve one of the, one problem at a time. If you look at the video of Starship's landing, uh, just as it was coming down, uh, and Scott Manley did an amazing sort of coverage of this, just as it was coming down, you could see that a couple of its legs weren't locked in place, they were sort of rocking back and forth underneath. And so that sounds like a fairly simple mechanical problem to fix. But how do you handle all of that weight, you know, this office tower coming down on steel legs, clearly the and something that's lightweight that you can actually carry, I actually think the idea of catching these things is pretty clever. I, I would not be surprised if they consider the same idea for Starship. 
as they're considering with the super heavy. So with the super heavy, the idea right now is that it won't have any legs at all, that it'll land and be caught by this big crane that will support the weight on the grid fins on the top. And then they'll gently put it back down, stack it back up and fly it again. And it might very well be that they can't sort out how to land this thing on some kind of leg system that won't buckle that won't that won't just take too much damage and be too heavy. I mean, you could make you could give it landing legs as beefy as the Falcon 9's landing legs, but then you're just carrying so much weight into space. So, you know, in Elon Musk's famous words, no part is the best part or the best part is no part. Uh, maybe the best part of, of Starship is having no landing legs. And instead, you've got some, you know, if they can really stick the landing, then maybe you've just got some kind of, of system that that the crane can catch and hold it in place as it's as it's coming down or like, you know, again, if this thing could cover, you know, imagine thing hovers close to the ground, and then just sort of moves sideways into some kind of dock, and it gets captured. So I think that there's, you know, the fact that it can hover gives them a lot of opportunities to explore other ideas, maybe they're gonna have to end up landing this thing in water. Um, you know, like there's tons and tons of ideas, they haven't explored them all. And I think that's the thing that I really wish people would have more patience for is that they see iterating and problems as as failure. But this is everyone knows that when you try to do something hard, you're going to experience problem after problem after problem. And the fact that they're iterating this out in public just is, is a demonstration, they're willing to take all of this criticism on the chin, and just keep going. And so it may very well be I mean, they, they originally were going to build starship out of carbon fiber, and now they're building it out of steel, like they're going to keep changing until they figure out something that works. And it might be that landing this thing on on titanium legs just isn't going to do the trick. And they got to come up with a new idea. And then it's back to the drawing board, and then they'll come back with some new idea. Um, it's fascinating to watch this progress. And it goes a long way to sort of showing how difficult rocket flight is and what it takes to solve a problem. That's hard, that you're gonna fail a lot. And and you just keep going. I hope they don't run out of money while they keep going. But you know, Starlink will pay for it. Starlink will pay for everything. Starlink is gonna make so much money. Mitch Harpino. When we go back to the moon, is there a foolproof plan to prove that all the moon landing is a hoax, the moon landing is fake morons that yes, we have landed on the moon? No, no. How how do you convince a person who doesn't believe in evidence? Like, so what's the evidence? You know, uh, you can't, it's not possible. So the path is the moon hoaxers, the moon landing deniers, they can just go over there and they can talk to each other in their own safe spaces, and enjoy their company with each other. And the rest of us who are into space exploration and space flight, and the current progress of the various things that are going on, can hang out with each other and talk about the things and consider the future and, and report the science and the discovery and the and the challenges and the things that are actually happening. I don't think we need to pander to people who aren't really interested in having a genuine conversation an open conversation. Um, it's not my job. Uh, it's not NASA's job. NASA's busy launching rockets. Um, and I think that that the less time we spend 
talking about these ideas, the better I, you know, I actually spend very little time on my channel addressing these kinds of issues because I don't care what a person thinks about whether we did or didn't land on the moon. I literally do not care. Um, and so I don't think you care if you and if you are like a moon hoaxer, this isn't the place for you. There's lots of places. It's a great big internet out there. Go find a community and have a chat with your buddies about the things that you don't believe are true as much as you like. Um, and if you want to have a conversation here and be a jerk about it, we just ban you because it's, you know, this is, this is my house. You can have conversations you want in your house. So no, there's no evidence that will ever convince them that we're landing on the moon. They didn't believe that Elon Musk was launching Starman in his Tesla. Thought that was a hoax. Everything's a hoax. Everyone's in on it all the time. It's a giant conspiracy. So Matt John 02, what are your thoughts on Star Trek Enterprise? In my opinion, NX01 minus the warp drive and artificial gravity could be built today if we wanted to. I don't know. Um, no, no, the things like that can't be built. Like what's the engine, right? Um, what is the fuel source? What is the propellant that's needed? When you think about the space missions that we send today, all the propellant is required just to get them off of the Earth's gravity well. And then they fly through space and they arrive at their target destination and they use the rest of their propellant to be able to go into orbit around that destination. Maybe they have a little tiny bit of propellant left to be able to make some minute course correction changes to go into a different orbit. And then they're pretty much out of propellant and they have to eventually be crashed into the planet. That is the state. That is the state of the art of space flight for humanity today. Now, maybe when Starship flies, and they're able to perfect everything, and they're able to get um, orbital refueling, then we'll see rockets with much more expanded capabilities being able to perform more complicated missions. But you always are just like ticking down the time for the amount of propellant that you have on board. But infrastructure, like, again, we are pre car in terms of spaceflight right now. But imagine there was like no place to fill up your car, like your car could take you as far as you had gas in the tank, which was not very much. Um, but now there's gas stations. And so you can stop at one gas station and refill and go to another gas station and refill and so on. So it's that infrastructure that we're going to require, we're going to require um, refueling at various points across the solar system where starships can go and refuel and and fill up with more propellant and there's going to be factories on asteroids and comets that are extracting resources so that people can be refueled. But that's going to be very complicated and require robots and a lot of technology and coordination and all that kind of stuff. So I think we are at least 100 years away from which is not long. I mean, we think like, what's 100 years? It's not long, not today. I don't think we I don't think we have any value today to build something like that, because it just there's just isn't that infrastructure yet to and what are you going to do with it? You know, are you going to have humans on board and fly from world to world across the solar system? Just like, like, there's not there's not targets to go, there's not capabilities to have, there's not ways to refuel, like we just don't have the infrastructure. But but that's going to come in bits and pieces in big and small. And over the next say few hundreds of years, um, that infrastructure is going to get built up. And then yeah, you will be able to hop in your, you're going to catch a shuttle from from the surface of the earth to 
orbit. You're going to get on your trans Mars shuttle and spend a couple of months on the way out to Mars and you'll be able to land on Mars and there will be shuttles ferries going back from Mars to Earth and there's going to be other stuff as well. So I think, yeah, hundreds of years, but I, and I, you know, I don't know whether like something like the Enterprise, there's a lot of metal. It's very heavy looking. Like mass is the enemy in space. And so what you really want is something that's very lightweight. You want something that's made of just a tiny little bit of aluminum and thin aluminum foil protecting you and the and the and the vacuum of space because you want to use the minimum amount of mass to move around. So science fiction has prepared us poorly for what the future of space exploration is going to look like. Samurai hash. Fraser, what do you think of crowdfunded science missions such as to Titan or Ganymede or Venus? I don't think that crowds could fund those kinds of missions, like the prices of a mission to Venus or a price of a mission to Ganymede or Titan is just so much money. Like, let's take the cheapest possible version, the like commission to Venus, you launch on a Falcon nine, okay, you're paying $60 million for your launch on your Falcon nine, you let's say the pro would cost you another $50 million. And you're doing that on a shoestring. That would be tough to crowdfund a $150 million mission. Now, obviously, that's like less than the budget of a single movie, but you know, movies make a lot of money. And, so, and there is no, there is no financial incentive to do it, right? There's no there's no money made when your mission arrives at Venus or when your mission arrives at Titan or Ganymede, there's you, you don't get any profit from it. And so it's just money that's just lit on fire and sent into space. Um, I think that there is an opening though for CubeSats, fairly small missions, things attached to other larger missions that could be crowdfunded. And I think that, that that's where we'll see this start to happen. Wouldn't it be great if there was a space telescope that was freely available by everyone to look through to just like, I want to control the space telescope for a couple of hours or couple of seconds and take a bunch of pictures of space and look around wouldn't that be cool. So I think that we're going to see those kinds of ideas first, or even like ideas for Earth observation or Earth communication or things like that. Let's start there. And then like there was like there was an idea that I had a couple of years ago. And I and I don't know if anyone's ever really done the same thing yet, which was I wanted to crowdfund a telescope or a, a space camera that would just fly around the Earth and just have a view of the of the earth that it was constantly streaming. And so you could just go and switch to the channel and you'd have this nice high def version of just the earth looking like you were in orbit all the time. And it would just be like cool, and you could spot landmarks. And I tried to figure out what it would take. And it was it was at that time, it was incredibly expensive. And, and there was no way to really send your data back home. Now with Starlink. Now we're talking. Um, you know, now there is a global network of telescope of, of satellites that could communicate and you could launch a CubeSat that was a camera showing the earth that could communicate. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll see if, if that's a possibility. Now I'm thinking, but anyway, apart from that, I can't, you know, I can't think of ideas that, that you, that we could just reasonably crowdfund to raise that kind of money. It's a lot of money millions, millions, billions of dollars. It's hard to wrap your head around how much money that is. But let's start small. Let's let's 
let's build a telescope that will, uh, you know, a space telescope, that kind of thing. <laughs> Simon Farmer, will Earthers ban spacers from their online games because their ping sucks? Yeah, the uh, the ping times to go to the moon will be say two seconds. So you know, when we we measure ping times in online games in milliseconds, um, a two second ping time a 2000 is that right? 2000 millisecond ping time is bad. Um, unacceptable. And of course, if someone's on Mars, and you're trying to play an online game with them, and you're having to wait 20 minutes for for every response. I mean, you know, no scope, you got them. But the satellites, the, the satellite things like Starlink are probably going to have faster ping times than fiber optics. It's kind of amazing that once these things get fully operational, and they're communicating peer to peer, not communicating back down to ground, once they're linking up and sending their messages, it's actually faster to communicate through space than it is to communicate by ground. And so people who fly who have satellite internet will actually have the advantage in in online games, which is kind of amazing. Mr. Man, if gravity moves at the speed of light, how do black holes still have gravity? Gravity is not a force that is sucking things in. Gravity is a distortion of space time. And so the more mass that you have, the more you distort space time and black holes have the most mass concentrated to the smallest amount. And so they distort the most space time. Um, so it's not about sort of, I mean, it's true that if a black hole just appeared, then the the great you would have to take time for the gravity to reach you. But that's just the way forces are communicated in the universe that light, magnetism, gravity, they all move at the speed of light, they all communicate their existence at the speed of light. But still a black hole just is a is a distortion of space time. Um, and that's what causes things to go in orbit around them just in the same way that the, you know, the, the moon is orbiting around the earth, not because there's some kind of gravitational pull, but that the earth is distorting space time so that the moon thinks it's going in a straight line, even though it's actually going in a circle or in an ellipse around the earth, which is kind of amazing. All right. We've reached the end of our hour. Uh, thank you everyone for taking the time to hang out with me today. Of course, if you want to get uh, really cool space news every week, like if you are, you know, you want to keep the conversation going, I uh, highly recommend that you sign up for my weekly email newsletter. This is a thing I write every Friday. And I'm sure a lot of the people that are in the chat right now can agree that it is a monstrous, comprehensive uh, document all about all the really interesting space and astronomy events of the entire week, I leave nothing out every single new space discovery I, I covered in this in this newsletter, it's totally free. There's no advertisements, I write it myself it comes out every Friday, sometimes it's early Saturday, depending on how busy I was on the Friday. But you can go to universe slash newsletter and sign up. And then the other thing that I do is I put all of the work that I do uh, and make it into an audio podcast, the universe today podcast, both the live shows that we do the interviews, but I also throw a lot of other interesting Easter eggs. Anytime someone wants to interview me, uh, I will uh, ask if I can put the audio of that interview into the podcast feed as well. So there's actually a really interesting interview with me and Simon Dan uh, just recently put into the podcast. So if you're into podcasts, and you should be because podcasts are like the most convenient way to get your space news, or anything, um, go just do a search for the universe today podcast iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Um, and I'll put links to all the stuff in the show notes. All right. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you all next week.